Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere, the Misfit Crew at Southfleet HQ is proud to bring you the Dive Living Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Die Living Podcast, brought to you, as always, by Softlead. This week, we have Zach Harbo joining us yet again in the studio, uh, as well as Brent, who is in visiting. He has a hammock up now, and we cannot be rid of him. Right. Our our own homeless veteran now has a home. Mm. So He had the best cardboard sign of them all. Right. We love him dearly. Welcome, Brent. Thank you. I appreciate the intro. Yeah, hey, anytime, man. Welcome back, Zach. Thanks for having me. It's uh, I don't know what the release will be in real time, but it's only been a day or two since I've seen you, and it feels like forever. So, last time we chatted, we talked a lot about your background, how you got into base jumping, how you got into kind of extreme sports, and I think today we're doing maybe a little bit more of like a roundtable discussion about adventure locations places that we've either either been or want to go for basically doing cool things so with that i think uh we can just kind of kick it off and I'll, I'll hand it right over to you zach and maybe if you want to lead off with either the best place you've been maybe not the best i feel like that's pretty wide open um what's one of the places that you want to go back to the most and why it's actually a good one. Um, typically, I keep going back to them. So uh, the Alps in Europe, I, uh, I've been going to for almost 10 years now. <clears throat> and a lot of that reason has to do with the accessibility. It's not difficult to get there. Um, it's not difficult to find your way around. People speak the language. Um, you can kind of speak broken French, Italian, German, and make your way around. But the big thing is it's really accessible. You... They build gondolas and stuff like that everywhere. There's roads everywhere. There's tunnels everywhere. So you don't have to go really super deep um, and be um, carry a ton of equipment in order to make this big, long journey into this backcountry area. Mm-hmm. It's super accessible. Um, so that helps out as far as repetitiveness and the amount of adventuring you can do in a short period of time. Um, being in the military, you know, you get after you come back from a trip or before you go on a trip, you got two weeks. That includes, you know, your travel time there and travel time back and limited resources and funds. Um, so that makes it easy. Um, most recently, I've been able to go Malaysia, Vietnam, China, um, places like that. And more difficult, um, m- maybe not as costly once you get there, but can be pretty costly to, to get there at times. Um, but a lot more austere. Like there's not um, the, the accessibility the robust transportation network to get from place to place. The language, the communication is a lot more difficult in order to find your way around. So there might be a little bit more homework uh, on the front end. Um, But to tell you the truth, there's so many places that I've been adventuring, so to speak, in the United States and BC, Canada, where it makes it really easy. So if the funds are limited and or that my timing is limited, then I just hop on a two or three or four hour flight to go up to Alaska or to go or drive, you know, a few hours north to go to BC. Um, 
I'm really lucky living in Washington state where I could just drive an hour or an hour and a half and I can be at the ocean on a river in the mountains, high desert, you name it. Um, so, um, I do kind of frequent the same places. Um, I definitely have some places that I, I want to go. Um, but that's some of the considerations that come into it, come yeah. into the what's, choice. What's on your list of want to go to, but haven't been yet? Patagonia. So, um, actually I'll broaden it out between Argentina, Chile, um, and, um, Bolivia. Yeah. Uh, Peru, Bolivia, like basically the, the, the Andes. Yeah. We were supposed to go to, uh, we were going to go to Cordoba. Yeah. We canceled um, the trip due to financial con- end time constraints, but I think Patagonia is going to be, I don't know. It's tough. Do you fly in and rent a car and kind of adventure? Do you drive from here right. and like do a real crazy month? Like, Unless you have you, a lot of time, I think you fly. Yeah. But I have a soft spot in my heart for Argentina. Yeah. And I love getting down there. I've not been to Patagonia though. So it's also high on my list of places. There was, uh, man, this is probably 20 years ago now. Definitely, I don't want to say like before the internet, but before the modern age of the internet. Um, before you know, Al Gore. Before Al Gore invented the internet. No, I think this was probably when dial-up was still like a legitimate thing. You know, uh, websites were not. What's a dial-up? Right? It's, uh, it makes a weird sound. I'm on my um, 1444 baud now. Yeah, exactly. Web pages loading line by line. I remember seeing in some magazine the it, it was not an ad it was uh it was something about like you know cool hotels or you know adventure destinations and seeing pictures of this hotel called los notros in patagonia and not only the list of things that could be done just right out the front door of the hotel i mean it's basically like on the glacier but they had you know tons of pictures in the magazine some of the pictures were from the rooms and, you know, all of the rooms face out. I'm glad if you see a picture of the actual hotel, which I've seen since then, the hotel itself does not look anything spectacular. But, it looks pretty baller right here. I'm looking at it on my phone. Uh, like the building, I think if you're looking from the glacier at the building, it is, I mean, I'm not saying it's a dump, but it's not like the, all of the, the resources have been poured into making the views amazing uh, and the experience amazing. So... Yeah, pictures don't suck. Yeah, I would love to would love to go down there and check it out sometime. So another place that's been popping up on my Instagram feed a bunch is the Hadavika Lodge, I want to say, in either Norway. I think it's in Norway, um, in the Lofoten Islands. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, if anyone else knows. Most assuredly not. Uh, yeah. Probably not. We, yeah. Rest but, assured you're totally fucking it up. Yeah. Hopefully it's close enough that, it, you know, if you Google it, you can figure it out. First, but, you can start getting the guest names correct. <laughs> crazy Norwegian pronunciations. Right? I, I got to start taking a notepad in here, but <laughs> phonetically spelling everything out. Carbo? Yeah, exactly. Car- carbohydrate. <laughs> so, yeah, I haven't fucked your name up yet, but... Yeah. Uh, you haven't called me Peaches yet? Or- there's still time. <laughs> yeah. I did that last time. Actually, that's yeah. true. I fucked your name up yeah. on the first podcast we did, so yeah. check that box. You called him Peaches? Oh, no, Chris. I called him Carnahan. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> funny. I was laughing. <laughs> but uh, Peaches is his name for Chris Carnahan. His 
unofficial official moniker. Yeah. So anyway, um, but yeah, those are both places that are high on my list of places to go as well. But what about Patagonia attracts you? It's raw. So I think what attracts me to Pat- to that region, at least of the Andes, um, obviously we know there's developing countries and all of those stuff and predominantly in the Southern hemisphere of planet earth, there's not a whole lot of development going on. Um, so my draw before my ever first going to Alaska was that, you know, Alaska is, you know, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. If you can make it in Alaska, you can make it anywhere. Still to this day, the people up there are rough. I mean, you have to be able to survive. Not just that, but particularly the Chugash. I mean, there's, I think there's seven ranges in Alaska, but there's not access. You, uh, two summers ago, or sorry, two uh, springs ago, we were about 50 miles in on snow machines, on snowmobiles, using glaciers as highways. And we get way back to the zone that even the locals that I was with in particular didn't know, like, what is this zone? You know, wound up being called uh, Abercrombie. And we look over on this glacier, on the, I think it was on the Santa Glacier, and we're dozens and dozens of miles in. And here's a five, five or six person um, group that's skinning on the glacier, towing, you know, sleds with all their gear. And they're doing essentially like the two week or so journey from the, Tom, the Richardson Thompson Highway up the Sandy Glacier. And I forget the zone that they said that they're going to end up in, but they're basically skinning and camping through the Chugash Range to go to wherever it is they were going. That's nutty. And it's like, do they know that we have snow machines? Do they know, <laughs> you know, there's, yeah. there's bush planes. Um, but that's the allure. It's you can go there and you can make it as plus, you can hop on a helicopter or you right. can literally be completely on your own. They had spent all that time and effort to be in a place where there's no assholes on snowmobiles. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, what's up? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're burning dead dinosaurs. How, how many times have you done that, though? You pick a tra- You're like, there's this beautiful trail. We're going to hike to the top. And, like, you get to the top. And there, it wasn't on the map, but you're like, there's a fucking road to the top of this thing. I could have gotten in my rental car and driven up here. Right. Or there's, like, a big dump up there. Yeah. Like, someone just took a dump. You're like, god damn it, surface shit. Steamer was right here. Dude, this guy Mike that edits stuff for us just made this long rant post on Facebook. He was like, I go to play basketball. Like he's got a young kid, you know, six or nine months old. It's like, I finally get like an afternoon to myself, go to this basketball court. There's four hoops. I'm the only one there. I'm like shooting hoops, loving it. He's like, this fucking dude shows up, comes to the hoop that I'm on and just starts like doing free throws and stuff. And like talking to me and he's like, motherfucker, there's like, Four hoops here total. Why would you come to the one that I'm shooting at? I have no idea who you are are, and just be like fucking, yeah, I'm going to hop in, you know, like fucking working this set with you. Like, yeah. Thanks sort of person that like plays their music loud on their phone in like a subway. Like, right. Oh, thanks. Or the Bluetooth thanks. speakers. Yeah. When yeah, they're they're hiking in the mountains. Thanks. Right. The DJ of the earth. You're, you're a real kind <laughs> person. Fun. Yeah. Well, anyway, let's, uh, yeah. I, well, I was really surprised at your choices given the, the access being one of the primary reasons. Cause for me, it's almost the opposite. Like I love to surf and going to a destination surf spot is like one of the things that I've done for a long time. And the idea of dry, like I live six hours from world-class surf in Southern California 
and I never go because it's like, man, I would literally rather fly across the globe to go surfing by myself on a break where nobody is than like bump, bump elbows paddling for a wave with 82 other dickheads. Well, know? and that's, but I also think, um, and let it be known, like I, you know, I started base jumping 13, 14 years ago. Let right. it be and known. let it be known. Let yeah. it be known. So I was also in a certain time and place. I was younger, you know, I was 13 right. years younger, um, very, very crunched timeline, um, as well as my other friends were and money and all these different things. So, um, it was, it was, it, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. So it was just different times. Right. Now where I'm at is, you know, I'm, even though I'm using snow machines and stuff like that, um, it's, I'm going to those further away places. Um, and right. that's, that's where I'm drawn to now. So it's, I would say maybe I've grown up a little bit, Yeah, you know, so it's my, my attention is being diverted. Well, and I think the timing thing too is different because when, if you, I've had times where I surfed literally every single day for months on end and it was amazing. Um, I had the time to surf every day then. Now, if I, I haven't gone surfing in two years basically. So if I'm going to take a week and go surfing, it's like, dude, I got to get, right. I don't necessarily care that I get a hundred amazing waves. Like I want those two or five, just like awesome, picturesque, perfect, you know, times. And the whole thing becomes an adventure. So I don't know if it's growing up or a lack of time or, or maybe both, but yeah. yeah. yeah all the, all of the things can be considered. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and with all that being said, I'm also, what, what you just said is, if, even if I only get two to five good ones, right? It's that quantity or quality over quantity, and even the journey. Like you know, Brian and I are going to, you know, get to travel the majority of this trip together and, and come back and everything. And I'm excited that I get to show him. Like here's here's where I've been coming for over a decade and all these things. Right. And, and I've got I know locals and stuff like that. So it's not only just about just about the quality over the quantity. Um, but it's sharing those experience with, with experiences with others. Or if I'm just doing something by myself, I can go and, you know, spend hours and hours and hours driving and hiking and all this other stuff to go do this one base jump or this, this one, um, you know, skin and ski. And like, ah, oh, like the snow wasn't even that good or whatever. I can either think of it that way or I didn't get the jump. But now where I'm at is I stop and I just, even before, like if I am going to jump, I stop and I take it in. Right. Even before I point my tips downhill, I just, I do, I stop and I appreciate it. And I'm, I'm, I'm very, very grateful and I'm appreciative of the journey that led me up to that point in years past, as well as, you know, the physical uh, journey going up the hill. So I'm just a lot more appreciative yeah. um, of that one run, or that one jump and right. that, that moment, that time. I think that speaks a lot to the maturity you were talking about in terms of not just going after, you know, how many jumps can I get in one day or, you know, kind of just chasing only the rush, but really, and even what you were saying, Brent, you know, like really starting to understand and appreciate the entire experience, the entire journey of getting to the experience, um, you know, without sounding too cliche using this, you know, the term journey, but, you know, the trip going wherever, wherever you might be going much further away to surf the whole idea of where you're going, taking that time to decompress. Right. You know, it's not just like load up the car, hustle out to California, you know, surf, 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 and go home where the whole time it's like go, 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 go. Now you're taking it into like a whole 
whole adventure of itself, right. making the destination part of it. Well, and that's what I was going to say too, is you talk about using sleds or, you know, and, and you're, or you're sledding in and you're seeing these guys on skis and you're like, man, I'm kind of the dickhead, but they, if they didn't have access to the sleds or maybe they were going somewhere that the sleds couldn't go, <clears throat> kind of what I'm getting at is I love using as much technology as possible. Like I'm not going to row a boat across the Atlantic. I'm going to fly. But when I get there, if I can't charter a plane to get somewhere, then I'm going to drive, right? But if if I can't drive, then yeah, we'll take mopeds or however you're going to get there. But I, I like that relationship of like trying to – somewhat conquer the landscape and not necessarily having to like, you know, backpack, backpack hobo everywhere, just making shit hard for the sake of making it hard. But that's part of that. Like you said, that adventure and like problem solving. Oh, did we get a Jeep stuck in the sand on the beach? Did we, you know, did we work through it, et cetera? So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And so the Patagonia or the Andes thing is because it, it's less inhabited. It's, it's more raw. Um, it's a little more remote. I mean, Tons of people go to the Alps. Tons of people go here. Um, right. But, you know, you don't hear that many people going, you know, to the Alps or, sorry, the Andes. Um, but I also, I have a friend, some friends of mine that I, I ski with in Valdez. They're guides in Valdez. They do the endless winter. So they're guides in Valdez and the Chugash in our winter summer, our winter spring. And then they head down to uh, Las Lineas in Argentina, um, which is just on the eastern side of the crest um, of the Andes. And they guide and live down there for our summer, their winter. And they've been begging me to come down and they show me the pictures. I mean, like you were saying, it's, it's, it's a lot more raw. Don't get me wrong. There's some, there's for sure some, um, you know, four star hotels and stuff like that. But when you look at the lifts or the access they have, it's pretty raw. Yeah. I was reading about this trip, uh, you know, people were driving basically through South America when they got to Patagonia. I forget what national park it was, but you know, they're they're entering this park as they're driving down basically to the tip of Patagonia, and the you know the soldiers at the the entrance to the park, you know, were like, "Hey, you're on your own from here on out." Right. You know, they're like, "Yeah, we get it." You know, they had two vehicles and whatnot, and it was like, "No, no, no." You know, like if something happens, like no one is coming for you. Um, you can call, you can do whatever, you know, but I think for us, it's kind of, even in the United States, I mean, there's clearly lots of dangerous places. I'm not even talking about the whole, you know, like everything's got railings and signs and whatever, you know, if you went backpacking basically almost anywhere in this country and something bad happened to you, there would be like a search party that gets sent out or, you know, something like that. And the idea of, Hey, like once you cross this line, you are totally on your own. Right. You know, if like your shit breaks down, there's, you know, there's no fucking tow truck you can call. No one will come to help no matter what. Uh, for most of us, that's a totally foreign concept. Right. But it, I think for those of us that have been in those situations, it's almost liberating in the same time because it's like you, it takes away options and options always complicate things, right? So if you're in bumfuck Patagonia and you snap a spindle on your 4 by 4 it's like figure it out man like <laughs> right either walk your ass out get another truck like jb weld like you figure it out right and so there's a little bit of it's slightly i don't even i think yeah it's it's slightly liberating to know like man everything that we do is on us like yeah well and you're gonna be a lot it. more deliberate in your choices oh right? for sure yeah well you should be yeah so it definitely makes you a lot more mindful right <clears throat> let's yeah man brian what do you got for us What's uh, what's on your list of places you've been or places you want to go? Mm, 
I I've been I haven't done any crazy. I mean, I've I've done some cool trekking and like Africa and stuff like I was gonna that. Say, you've been I've never been to Congo. You've spent six months in Congo, right? Yeah, Congo is yeah. pretty rad, man. But Congo's wild as fuck, man. That's the most wild place on the planet I can think of. Other yeah, than it's like talking Siberia. about no one's coming for you. You know, it's <laughs> somebody might be coming for you. Dude, yeah, our, yeah our, <laughs> dude, our, our medevac was like, if anything happens, the medevac is going to take you. It's going to be eighteen hours at a minimum to get yeah. you where you need to be. Wow. So don't get hurt. <laughs> like that was kind of the thing. <laughs> if you see a black mamba, walk the other direction. Right. Um, when we saw a lot of that stuff, you know, the wildlife was definitely the biggest uh, part, but it is super beautiful. You know, it's oh, yeah. these rolling kind of hills and, and beautiful trees and all that sort of stuff. But I mean, it's talk about as wild as wild can be. That is, that is it. You know, there's just the flora and the fauna are all there to yeah. tell you. Well, it, so I went to Kenya, Rwanda on a safari with my mother, who's, this is like her fifth or sixth time doing it. Um, to see the great migration last summer. And it was amazing and beautiful, but it was super disappointing because there's like a lion tackling a zebra, right? And there's like 32 land cruisers yeah, 15 feet away taking pictures. It was actually really funny. There's a National Geographic. Can I, can I say that? Are we allowed to, yeah. yeah. So there's a National Geographic truck that's like filming things. And the it was they were filming like the zebras crossing the river getting eaten by alligators and there's literally 15 or 20 land cruisers there and so with the way they like changed their crossing point and our truck was in the way of the national geographic like shot and this this person in the national geographic jeep was like get out of our way you're ruining the shot and like Dude, there's 30, like there, there is a mass of vans here. Like go film some shit nobody else can see, right? Like yeah. your National Geographic, like go f- find an exotic bug to film. Like this thing's been, right. this, this shot's been done before, <laughs> bro. Like head elsewhere. Yeah. And I had, I had experience like that. I was, um, kayaking in the San Juans, just doing, you know, a couple overnight trips and everything. Um, so you, you kayak from, we take a ferry to one of the islands or from the, or just kayak from the mainland to one of the islands and get to another island and then set up camp and, you know, circumnavigate some of the islands and all that stuff. And I'd never been on a whale watching tour. And after this experience, I never will. And I get it. There's commerce, you know, all this other stuff. And it's, it's for a lot of people, that's the way that they can be closer to right. some of this wildlife. However, um, and we're actually finishing our trip and um, the guide we were with uh, that I've befriended, they get a little bit of the traffic of the whale watching um you know, stuff on the radio. He's like, hey, there's a pod in this area. And something. okay, cool, maybe we'll see some orcas. And we're in, you know, human power generated um, um, kayaks. I would say within probably about 45 seconds, there was literally the cavalry of these massive, massive oh, yeah. boats with, and there's there's laws. And Riley was saying like, yeah, there, there's, skirting on the fringe of what the regulations are. Um, but we were there, we rafted together and these orcas, this pod is coming right at us. And, you know, the law states you, um, if you raft up or if you're in an area and they come at you, then you're good, but you can't approach them. Right. So we're like, he's like, Hey, we're good. We're good where we're at. If they go right by us, that's fine. If they come right at us or if they go around us, we're good. These whale watching boats, were out of control. I mean, circling up everything, and the next thing you know, the the pod that was breaching and you know coming around and stuff like that 
was gone. They basically go down, they go down deep, and they kind of use the the, um, uh, the deeper water and everything. They go up in this channel, and then the radio comes up that somebody else said, hey, we spotted them on the other side of this island. And, man, I mean, it was like – it was like the Tour de France, you know, the starting gun going off and they just, brrr, they pick up and, you know, here we are trying to not be the snow machine, you know, when everybody else is skinning or the helicopter that's landing and everything, when everybody else is trying to do human power. Um, and here come the motors and all that other stuff. And you get to see the effects that that type of stuff has. Yeah. And that was like, that was my thing. I was like, nope, I will never go on one of those tours again. Well, it's that instant gratification culture of like, right. we did a elk hunt this year. There was like six or seven of us that went on a unguided public land elk hunt in Colorado. And we didn't see a single goddamn elk in 10 days, but nobody was disappointed. Cause right. it was like, dude, that's like public land. Like of, of course on the way there and like on the way out where we didn't have tags, we saw tons of elk, but um, nobody was disappointed because it was all guys that have been hunting. They've been outdoors quite a bit and they realize you can't just be like, I'm going to go see an elk today and like walk out and right. see one, right? Most people don't live like that. They see National Geographic and they're like, oh, you can like get on a boat and go see a whale. And so if, you know, you sell a $100 whale watching ticket and don't show somebody a whale, they're right. never, they're, not only are they never coming back, but they're telling all their friends like these guys were idiots. They right. couldn't even find a whale. Yeah. Well, this, that was a big part of um, being in Africa. We were right, we were about 40, 40 miles west of this big national park. It's in Northeast Congo called Garamba. Mm -hmm. And I got to know the the guys that were park rangers there. They're like, man, it's this really <clears throat> interesting dance. We have to dance because we bring in money for this park right. through tourism. Right. You know, people come here and tour and want to see the animals. And that creates uh, a bond, you know, with people. They see these animals. They see how majestic they are in the wild. They go home and they donate money to conservation right, efforts and right. they spread the word. What that but when you but when people make their way all the way to the deepest, darkest hearts of Africa to see elephants, guess what? You need to they show them see elephants. elephants yeah. The problem is is that if you desensitize these animals to humans, that makes them so easy to poach. Oh yeah. Yeah. And they talk about that in in Kenya and all these places where hunting is illegal, but safari is legal it's like an all-you-can-eat buffet for poachers because they oh, can just roll it. in the animals are like like you said a lion and a zebra like 15 feet away from a land cruiser well if anybody had a rifle on that huh, well that's a dead lion right and but in areas like namibia where hunting is legalized it is ultra difficult to get close to any of the animals oh i'm sure so Visual safaris, yeah. Right? Visual right. safaris are not very popular. A, yeah. There is a fine line, and and like I said, I understand a tourist or a hunting industry, if if managed properly, will generate funds for conservation. Like I, I you know, growing up in New Orleans, I learned very early about conservation, like how right. important it is. Like and like what Brian was saying, if you are able to create that bond, then people are more willing to help support the conservation of, as long as hopefully they're educated about. What, right. what is involved with conser conservation. Um, but yeah, it's that fine line between not creating a problem, but being intrusive enough to where you can provide access to help fund, you know. Yeah, it's it's not as simple as a lot of people like to right. think of like, well, we just outlaw hunting or no, hunting's great. Let right. it go gangbusters. It's like not yeah. necessarily 
I think Kenya has, I know Kenya has no hunting, but I think their model is working really well. But what I've heard is when you leave the main parks, it's basically is desolate wasteland. So like the park looks beautiful. Right. It literally looks like a scene of the Lion King. You get out of that park and a park is like, the size of a state, right? Like it's these huge parks, but you get out of that park and it's just wasteland. And it's kind of like if you, uh, I haven't been, but when you see those aerial views of uh, the pyramids of Giza, you know, like right. it looks like there's nothing but desert, you know, the way they uh, frame the photos, there's nothing but desert. Oh, they're, you know, they're all this stuff. And then you get an aerial view and there's literally massive population and, and you know, build up all around those things. Oh, just yeah. The way it's framed. Well, I mean, my dad was actually just there two days ago. Um, yeah, and it was like you just take a bus out of Cairo and, you know, there's how many thousands of people going every right. day, right? And so it's, to, uh, to me, that ruins it. So, like, the idea that you could just, like, take a, a bus there, like public transpo, and, like, show up. So it's to me, it's almost – but I've been to some really rad places that weren't hard to get to, but they were really complicated, right? It was like – like, I did a, uh, a weird trip where, I, you know, flew to Africa – drove to a, a boatman, got on a boat, like rode a boat. Like that was super cool, but it was also really convoluted and complicated where it's like a whole lot of waiting around. You know, the timeline is very fluid. Um, and I think the complicated stuff oftentimes is a, enough of a barrier to entry to make stuff really cool, right? right. Where you can't just like one click buy the Pyramids of Giza where you're like, <laughs> you've got six clicks to buy right, it, yeah. right? Right. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I mean, it's a sliding scale, right? So For sure. You know, my dad's 70 years old. Like, he's not... No, he's like, he's I not just want to see trip to, pyramids, yeah. Yeah, to yeah. Egypt on his own. You know, he's like with a tour group and... Um, I guess that's a subjective uh, subjective argument as to whether should that be allowed. Is it better that he gets to go see them and ch you know gets to check that box for himself? But I or, I think there's a middle ground though. I don't mean to interrupt you. Oh, no, that's I right. Did. But so in in Rwanda to see the mountain gorillas, they have a kind of middle ground, and so you can do like we did a six mile in, six mile out trek that it's it's kind of degrading for the people that are riding, not necessarily the people that are carrying, but if you can't keep up on these gorilla treks, like six locals bring a stretcher and you have wow. to pay like a hundred bucks or 200 bucks. But it's like, it's, it's basically mandated. Like, Hey, you, if you think that you're not going to make it or like your guide service will bring enough cash to cover a couple people, they're like, no bro, like you're getting in the stretcher. We've only got a finite window to see these gorillas. But what they do is, is that's like their backstop so that it's, it's literally accessible to everybody. But the other thing that they do is they try to match groups of people's fitness with the trek that they're going on, right? So the rangers know where the gorillas are, and they're like, hey, you're obviously 90 years old and not in any kind of shape. We're going to send you on the one-mile trek that's, like, up a slight incline. But, like, the people that obviously are hiking all the time and super into this, we'll send them on the 12-mile death march to go see the gorillas. So it's, I think there is kind of a middle ground where you don't necessarily have to like drive the bus up to see it. Right. Right. No, I, well, yeah. just like everything else too, there's a level of satisfaction that is commensurate with the amount of work for you sure. have to put in an yep. effort that you have to put in to get there. And it doesn't necessarily, like you said, have to be correlated, I think with like physical effort, but right. whether it's like planning or, you know, time to get to a place, um, that's going to be a more awesome trip than like driving the bus up, snapping a picture and like on to the next stop. Oh, for so. sure. The and greatest disappointment of my life 
regarding that sort of thing was we were where I was in Africa was pretty close to the pole of inaccessibility of the continent of Africa, like literally as far away from like people or the coastline as you could possibly be. Um, yeah. At one point we were like 20 miles away from that pole. I was like, that's pretty cool, man. Like, you know, um, and coincidentally, it, we were in this little city called Bilikwa. I mean, I say city. It's a village that you would picture from the movies. Six huts I mean, there's like yeah. Six huts and kids were I mean, as poor as poor can be. Literally no way to get there. I mean, there is a road, but no one has any vehicles, so you'd have to walk out. And if you wanted to walk out, probably the nearest real town is a couple hundred miles away. So did you guys fly on a helo? Or yeah, what? we yeah, came in on a helo, and we were providing aid to that, and we were trying to figure out where the – the militias were walking through, you know, yeah. so it's like, Hey, I'll fix, you know, fix the contact dermatitis you've had your whole life in exchange for some information. But, um, so near Biliqua is the Bili forest and there's a population of chimpanzees in the Bili forest. They're called the Bili apes that are like super chimpanzees. They're like gray. Rip your dick right And off. they're like six feet tall. They're like and it, it, for a long time, it was like Sasquatch, right? Like these don't exist. They call them, the locals call them lion killers. And sure enough, like they absolutely exist. And the locals were going to take us over there and like, hey, you want to see the Beely Apes? You, you damn right I want to <laughs> see the Beely Apes. Right. So we were going to hike out and do that. And we ended up getting recalled like literally right as we were about to leave. You blew it. For this trek. And as we're flying away, I'm like, there is a 0.0% chance Ever in my life, I'll be. <laughs> right. That was the chance. That was the chance. <clears throat> right. And I blew it. I think I'm looking up the Billy Apes right now. You Aaron, sure? you kind of hit on it. Um, with certain things withstanding um, age and actual physical ability or disability, um, one of my things like with fitness, you know, we're talking about all these things like gaining access to these places. So you take a, you know, an age of, which is associated with disability or ability levels. And then there's obviously the monetary value of it. But one of my kind of tenants has always been, a, I always rely on other people, like we all do. There's there's a community behind or, um, any achievement. But one of the things that I refuse to allow is my inability to prepare myself, mentally, physically, whatever, to become a liability to other people. Like whether it's in my immediate party or whether it's, you know, I'm, I'm out on my own and I got myself into the situation the last thing I want to do is not to call for help, but knowing like what ruminates in my head is these people are having to stop their lives or having to do all this stuff because I hit the SOS button and like all this other stuff. And then it comes back to me. What could I have done to prevent this? So, you know, you're talking about the one mile loop and the six mile loop and stuff like that. What I appreciate and what I work towards is the preparation leading up to it. Do I know you know, do I take the D-line bus? Do I meet this guy in the boat or whatever? So I have all that stuff set aside. <clears throat> but like, you know, climbing Kilimanjaro, it's not a difficult climb, but it is a slog, you know. Well, are you physically able to do that so you don't have to get the six people to c carry you on the stretcher? Because I don't want to become that liability, whether it's I got to have a Sherpa carry something for me or... You'd um, be a terrible king. <laughs> right. <laughs> So <laughs> I don't want the litter. <laughs> so that's, that's part of my thing. So if you can do all of the, all of these things to prepare, um, yeah, mentally, physically, all these other things, then you are able to gain greater access to these things. Like what we started off with, oh, what are your sure. goals? Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? 
well, yeah, I can spend a lot of money and have people carry my bags for me, you know, with white gloves, but I want to experience it. My, my, my priorities have shifted. So if I can keep myself mentally alert, physically strong and morally straight, <laughs> as, the, honor. as the Ranger Creed says, um, then I can do these things and I can be a part of a, uh, of a party. And I got invited on that heli skiing trip in the Wasatch because, you know, somebody else couldn't make it. So I was filling a seat, but I got chosen because they know how serious I am about things. They know the education I put myself through and my right. ability level. So, yeah. Gives the best handies in the tri-state area. <laughs> that was the reality of it. Yeah. Oh, that it's makes sense. Soft mitts. But to finish what you asked about future stuff, I my bucket list, I want to do the uh, Annapurna circuit in the Himalayas. Yeah. yeah. There's um there's a it's like in between, depending on which route you go and if you use transportation in certain parts, there's it's a hike between 110 and 140 miles that's around the Annapurna Massif which is huge, just 30 miles long. And, you know, the, the highest peaks there, the highest peak is over 8,000 meters. You know, it's like 27,000 foot peak. But you just hike around the base of the whole massive. You're still pretty high, though. I mean, yeah, the highest point you have to, so you go from one valley to another valley on the other side of it, mm -hmm. and there's a pass to cross over, and it gets up to like seventeen or 18,000 feet at the pass. Yeah, so I mean, it's still like a legit, yeah. it's not like a walk. No, no, it's not. I mean, there is some definitely, but you, you do it slow. Like everybody pretty much starts at one spot and they hike it counterclockwise and it like builds the altitude pretty slowly over the trek and you stay in tea houses. So you like book up these little tea houses. So you're not like packing in a ton of food. I mean, you pack some food and you, you probably have some shelter with you for, for emergency purposes, but pretty much every night you're like staying in a bed, you know, and it's not like super primitive, but you're still in the middle of Nepal, yep. you know, hiking this thing. The, some friends of mine did, and they're like, man, like I've been a lot of places in the world. They, they had been to Patagonia, done all this sort of stuff, and I've never seen anything in person that was just as humbling as, I mean, there's points where you're in the valley, and the mountain is literally 18,000 feet above you. Right. You know, it's like looking at a huge cloud formation, but it happens to be made of rock. You know, it's the, 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 the standoff is really, really big. Um, and apparently it's just rad. You can hike also because it's um, sort of in the shadow, the, the massive creates like a rain shadow. You can even hike it during the monsoon season. Like it's pretty passable like all year round. Well, most people most people hike it in like fall, like October through November, like September. I'm super disappointed. I thought for sure you had like a lineup of foodie destinations. And I, I was have about to too. get educated <laughs> on like – where to get the best bush meat or something. I have those too. But as far as like the destination that would be difficult to get to, because it's not easy. You've got to fly, you know, to wherever and then take another plane and take a trek, you know, all sorts of stuff. So there's a lot of, someone has to make a lot of arrangements <laughs> as we were making fun Dude, of Dude, I like, want those business cards. <laughs> arrangements made, research right. conducted. Um, but once you, yeah, once you get there, you know, it's, it's not a super duper strenuous thing. Like no one I've ever talked to that's done it has said like, man, that would like really broke me off, but it takes, you know, depending on how fast you go, there's a baseline, you know, you're probably doing 10 miles a day to, to like eight to 10 miles a day. So it's not a long, you know, you could bang that out in two hours if you're moving out, but most people just like really take it in, you know, like, right. Yeah. Know, and it's not always about that. Like, yeah. Eight to 10 miles at 10 to 14,000 feet. Yeah. Even if you're not gaining that much. No. You, that's not a couch to 5K. No, 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 no. You have to be in good shape right. for sure. But you, it's also not like 
some 40 mile barnstormer, right, yeah. you know, where you're just like, oh man, goddamn, so broke off. I mean, people are talking, you know, you get to where you're going and you sit down and you relax and you drink some tea and you have a great meal. And, you know, it's, no, there's a talking. relaxation kind of Zen quality to so the So are trip. you packing 10 days or however many days where the food with you and everything? Or is no, it there's at like the villages that you can resupply all gotcha. along the way. And like I said, they have tea houses that you stay at along the way too. So before you do the trek, I mean, there's, there's, broker companies of course that do all this sure. sort of stuff but you can book all the tea houses that you're going to stay at and but it's one of those things you really need to book it like a year in advance because that shit books up super fast sure so the, the and the reason i was excited about hearing the food destination is the food on most of those trips aside from like a backpacking trip where you're eating a mountain house meal or an mre the food is to me like half of the experience right like you're done you're done jumping, skiing, whatever, and it's like, dude, where are we going to eat and grab a beer, right? Yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. that is a huge part of the experience, at least, well, probably for everybody in this room, when you do go somewhere, it's like, I want to eat some amazing food, even if it makes me sit on the toilet for four hours tonight. Yeah, I mean, even no. in Switzerland, like, uh, I'll introduce you to Rocklette. I mean, and sometimes, you know, because of the cheese is... When it gets cooking, you're like, "Oh my god, who's got the worst bo ever?" <laughs> and then you, it, then the, it your, gets then your food shows up. And you're like, yeah, oh. Your food shows up, and you're like, "Who's who took their shoes off?" It <laughs> smells like feet, and you're like, "Oh, that's my food." But you put it in your mouth, and you're kicking feet underneath the table. Yeah, all that's, the places I want to go eat, it's like not difficult to get to. It's just like you have to have like ultra difficult reservations to get. I've got to dig up. There's a Dorcia. there's a guy who. Uh, owns a couple restaurants in Europe that lives in Patagonia. I got to bring up this dude's name. I'll, I'll Francis Malman. Yes. You know exactly who I'm talking about, right? Ross is, that is like Ross's hero. Really? Yeah. So if Brian goes and hangs out fact, with him, Ross is going to like stab him in his sleep. Yeah, we have at the butcher shop, um, he has a very famous book called Seven Fires. Yep. Yeah, he and cooks everything on open fire, right? Yeah. yeah. Is that the dude and that's on that show, uh, Chef's Table? That's I, cooking in he, Patagonia. Yes, cooking yes. Yeah, yeah, yep. fire. yeah, that's yeah. him. He also, I mean, I don't think he's, he's certainly a celebrity even in the United States, but like in South America, you know, he's like the Emerald Lagasse, like, you know, Mario Batal. I mean, he's larger than life figure down there. Right. So, yeah. So Brian can't show up at his house for dinner? I mean, I maybe. Will. There's that awesome scene in Chef's Table where he's like cooking on the rowboat and he's got like the whole like, you know, like grill like hanging off the side of the As rowboat. As one does. Yeah, Dude, in, you know? in Mali we had, uh, I have a picture of it, but we had like f fresh roasted like chicken, beef, and fish like right on the river on like an open grill. It was super cool. Dude, uh, Ross has some of those like splay grills, you know, that you stick in the ground on an angle. Oh, yeah. And lean over the fire. And uh, he does cookouts at the farm. Like when he, he has like butcher shop, like anniversary parties and stuff. Nice. Where Just a have bunch of hippies getting drunk and naked. Basically, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They've got a wood-fired hot tub there. Yeah. yeah. Old school, man. What about you, Brent? What's when when the money train finally pulls in the station, what is your, oh, what is your yeah, destination? Where, where are we going? I do want to do a Patagonia trip. I also want to do a west coast of Africa surf trip in the mm. fall at some point. And so um, I've done – a lot of surfing in Africa, but never just like, hey man. The the problem with that trip is you need like a month to do right. it yeah. right if you're gonna drive everywhere. Like basically start in Morocco and like go yeah down start in Morocco and, and yeah exactly Ivory Coast and all that. Yep, Morocco. exactly. I didn't realize that was a big surf. It's not, but well, 
it's not a well-known one, but there's some amazing breaks out there that like you can find YouTube videos where it's like three videos of like one dude surfing. Well, I mean, dude, like, why is nobody surfing here? So all we the just big storms in an M4. And yeah. yeah. All the big storms form off the Western right. coast of yeah. Africa. Right. right? Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was, so my first time I surfed a lot was in Dakar and then I was in Morocco in the fall and the, the waves there I've surfed. A lot of places and the waves there have like a, a weird wild power like they're really hard to read they're super powerful and everybody not everybody there the majority of the people there are terrified of big waves so you're surfing in like 10 foot breakers and not only is there like nobody around like on the beach there's no other surfers like it's it's just like you or you and your buddy um, I actually almost accidentally killed one of my teammates the first time we battled out in Morocco because he's like yeah I can surf and it was like a 400-yard paddle. So from the beach, I'm like, oh, that looks like it's four to six feet. And it was like 12 to 15 feet. <laughs> wow. So we get out there. I catch a wave. And I'm like, dude, this is awesome. He's like, no, we need to go now. And so it took us like three hours to paddle in. He was, it was bad. But he still he still hasn't forgiven me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for almost killing me. Yeah, he's like, remember that time you took me <laughs> surfing and almost fucking killed me? Was he not a like had he ever surfed before he no he a, had surfed but he'd surfed in like florida in like three foot wind waves <laughs> coco beach yeah exactly and so like the the deployment before that one i was in dakar so i was literally surfing like three to seven days a week and there were storms rolling through so it was anywhere from two feet to ten feet and so i hopped teams to deploy faster so I and surfed the whole time in North Carolina so I was like on my game so to me when somebody was like yeah I can go like I didn't bat an eye at going out into what I thought was six foot waves I'm like eh, maybe that'll be a little challenging but when you get out there and it's like 10 plus it's like mm, maybe I drug him into something <laughs> he wasn't prepared for right but well, so where in Western Africa would you want to go? Just, I mean, I mean, like just a road trip. Type yeah, thing? just literally a road trip down the coast, like start in Morocco, end up in Liberia. Get like an adventure so motorcycle, and I so think you wouldn't want to go any farther south of Liberia, like down in Namibia or any of that. I would if you it got to end in Cape Town, baby. I I don't want to surf continent. in South Africa because I'm terrified of sharks. Pussy. Dude, <laughs> you're, you're in like, the ocean. There are sharks everywhere. There are not. <laughs> there, I mean, but the probability of you getting hit by a shark is it's, like vanishingly low. Okay, so if, if... Not in South Africa. But what you're talking about, dude, that's like driving around the entirety of the U.S. and stopping to surf for like a day or two here. Like the how long that trip would take. Like if I had six months to do it, just yeah, it Just sense. a journey from Morocco around, around that side from Morocco through Sahara to sub-Sahara Africa. Right. It's like the United States plus. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, it's... Yeah. I mean, well, that's why, that's why Africa See, is. American kids are all fucked up because... Yeah. Learn the geography. Because of the Mercator projection that is hanging in every single classroom minimizes Africa by about 40%. No, that place right. is... Yeah, it's... Yeah. So people don't realize... like six times into yeah. Africa. Yeah, you can put... Basically, the entirety of Western Europe and China and the United States, including Alaska, plus some extra shit into the continent of Africa. Right. It's fucking gargantuan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and pe like people don't realize that like when the Benghazi thing was happening, people were like, why didn't they just go down from Europe to help? Or in Somalia, and it's like, dude, that is like that's twelve hours, right? Or that's thirty hours of flying. Hey, like, why didn't they do just, that, motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not just like an instantaneous thing, right? Uh, but no, that that that's <laughs> kind of my killery. yeah. That's my my bang up trip is like 
I want to do that. And and th- in reality, that's probably in pieces, right? It's probably like oh, yeah. fly in, maybe do like Morocco to Dakar and yeah. then, you know, fly into Dakar, head south. But the other problem with that trip too is like if you find a good spot that's just going you off just for three stay. days, you're like, dude, we're camping yeah. out. Like, so, well, those are I, the best trips, right, where you have the flexibility to right, do that. Exactly. Like, dude, we don't have any place to be. This is this is the place to be right, right now. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Brent's in the back of the truck sleeping off the cat buzz that he had from last <laughs> night. Right. But there's a uh, – I would do that in SUVs to answer your question, yeah. Aaron. Like definitely two SUVs with – I would not solo that trip. I've done some sketchy stuff solo. I wouldn't solo that. Just from a safety perspective? Yeah, safety. Well, twofold. One, I wouldn't want to get rolled up, you know, by benditos uh, in my sleep. But also, like, if you're surfing a 10 foot break by yourself with nobody on the beach, Mitch Buchanan is not running slow mo after you to come save you. Exactly. (laughs) So. Right. No, that makes sense. Yeah. So. It's a, I mean, yeah. I was picturing like the Ewan McGregor, you know, what was that show he had a while back? Oh, where he, when he went from all the way to the top of like the UK all the way down to Cape Town in yeah. one, one shot. Crazy. He's yeah. done three of those trips. He did yeah. there to the bottom of there. And then he went from the northernmost part of Alaska to the bottom of South America. And then he did from Britain all the way through Mongolia, like, you know, the went laterally across. Yeah. yeah, man. He's done some pretty epic shit. Mm-hmm. There's this dude. Money the, is rad, dude. The, the yeah. Obi-Wan. Yeah. <laughs> money and time. Well, as I say, it's money and time, right? Yeah. Like, And you could really, if you, when I was in Dakar, I met some Norwegians that were into surfing that would take public transportation. So they would literally get on a bus for like $3 heading south with a surfboard in their hand. But it's like standing room only for 12 hours. And that's how they did their surf trip. And they were on... Uh, welfare from their their homeland, and so they were just doing it on the cheap. I don't want to be on a public bus in Africa, like shoulder to shoulder with. I don't want to be on a public bus in the U.S. shoulder mm-hmm. to shoulder yeah, for with sure. people, literally standing for like eight hours. That does not. That's not an idea of vacation mm-hmm. for me. So. White tablecloth, I mean, motherfucker. Yeah, well, I don't need the white <laughs> tablecloth. To me, there's a middle ground too, right? Like right. I'd be, I, I would, I'd be cool with bouncing in the back of a shitty cab by myself or with one other person, but not. I don't want to be standing for that long. Agree to disagree. One of my friends, (laughs) (laughs) when he was in college, he and his roommates one year decided to throw, I don't know, you know, a hundred bucks each into this pot. And it was who could make it the furthest from their location on terrestrial based public transportation over the course of spring break. Whoever made it the furthest would win the pot. And they didn't hear from one of the dudes for like four days after spring break. And they were like, oh, shit, like what happened to this guy? He made it to Belize. Whoa. Really? Yeah. And was like broke in South America or Central America. It was like, uh, like <laughs> Did fuck, I win the like, pot? Because I'm going to need it to get back. Yeah, exactly. Uh, please, please send help. Wire money so I can get home. It's like, man, that's, a, that's like a fucking solid effort, man. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. That's so, amazing. Just overnight Greyhound to the border. And I would have made it to a bar on the beach and been like, well, fuck it. This is where I'm doing spring break. <laughs> That's where I got it. Right? It's like, yeah, you just you got to the Panama Canal and you're like, well, I guess, I, I guess yeah. I'm old. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, man. Well. Yeah, I think one of the commonalities, we're all talking about places that we would go that in one way, shape, or form would challenge us. Um, and yeah. we, you know, we yeah. talked about food, oh, yeah. we talk about, you know, people and stuff like that. We, you know, even Alaska, even in the United States, you know, you're going to meet people that are a different breed, you know? And, and if you come from a certain population in the lower 48, you're going to be like, man, these people are backwards. But if you, if you have an open enough mind to go to these places, 
fully actually experience it as much as you possibly can um, in, in all aspects, physically, mentally, you know, culturally, everything. And then you bring that experience back to you, back to your local community, because now you're looking at things through a different lens. So you hear somebody pop off or you hear somebody like, no, I don't need to work out and stuff like that. And you can, not that you're going to take the holier than thou approach, but you can improve your circle, improve your community by those experiences. And I think, you know, not to get super political, but I think that's one of the reasons why we're having this tribalism and all these, this strife and one side or the other is because we're so used to our camp. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not pushing ourselves. We're not pushing ourselves culturally, you know, with our views and our opinions. We're not pushing ourselves, you know, um, physically. Well, and people want a sounding board. Right. So instead of me being like, yeah, I want a, a hard trip that's like, camping out on the beach and grilling fish and Brian's like no I want the white glove instead of us yelling yeah. at each other it's like no cool alright I could appreciate that but well, yeah it's yeah. not binary either I mean it's not like yeah. you have to do you know fuck snowmobiles we're, we're walking for three weeks through the mountains of Alaska but tons of people think about it like that like even especially in the outdoor community there's people that are like no I'm anti-motor anything so when we were it's it's funny. It's almost serendipitous. You didn't earn it. When we yeah. were in the Wasatch, obviously, you know, we had a helicopter. You know, mm-hmm. you how many helicopters did you? Well, have? We actually had access to four. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but we only had two at any given time. Um, but proceed with the story of grit. <laughs> <laughs> we did use the helicopter to make a rescue on the side of a mountain. The uh, video is pretty. Yeah, rough. we've got video to prove it. Uh, but what was funny is. With that story in mind, um, so there is a heli operation in the Wasatch, and we knew that we were pissing that operation off for sure because we were out there essentially poaching their stuff. And then you have the the Wasatch is full of human powered advocates. You know they don't they don't even like snow machines up there. You know, let alone helicopters. We're burning dinosaurs, all this other stuff. But then we get a phone Fuck call. Those dinosaurs. Yeah. Then we get a phone. Yeah, they're dead anyway. We get a phone call. Hey, man. I heard you guys were kind of in the area. Is there any way you can help? So we're like, absolutely. So we hop in our helicopter and we basically go and fly to this this general zone where he said he, this individual said he was at. And what was interesting is what what comes to mind if you're he broke a leg, so and he was skinning, he was up there under human power. When you come across a person in a general area and you're in a helicopter and you're looking for this person to rescue them, would you think that that individual maybe be waving their hands like, hey? These are the droids you're looking for. You would maybe think that, right? Yeah. So, but knowing that we have a lot of pissed off people in the Wasatch at this time that are skinning up and snowshoeing and all this other stuff, we come across this individual, which kind of fits the description, in the general area, and they're just standing there with a cell phone looking at us. And I feel really bad because he's a really nice guy, but I'm going to put him on blast. I'm not going to say who it is. And we're like, that can't be him. That is some pissed off, super anti motorized transportation person who's probably putting us like live streaming us right now to the gram. Yeah. So we keep flying around. <laughs> so we're like, that's so clearly not that person. Pick me up dickheads. Yeah. Cause they're standing up yeah. and I found out why they were standing up, but standing up, they're videoing us like, dude, we, we should probably get out of here. So we circle around. We wind up calling them. Yeah. That man, that's me. I'm like, Oh geez. So we go rescue him and everything. We pick them up. Um, but there are people that are adamant, I mean, they will do whatever they can do to stop that type of operation. Oh, Snow yeah. machine. I mean, even, you know, they want vehicle access to be limited, you know, so they don't plow the road so you can't get vehicle a- access back there. 
I understand it, but at the same time, get people outside, get people experiencing those things. You know, some of those tax dollars are going to go towards that type of stuff, um, towards improving, you know, um, the outdoors. And, you know, we talk about snow machines. If you've never ridden a snow machine, like in the mountains, it is not easy. It is oh, it's like it's a not dirt as, bike on snow. It right? is not as physically taxing as, you know, gaining all three or 4,000 feet in elevation. But holy crap, I mean, I am spent, I'm sweating just doing up one pitch. Right. Um, so there well, the, the thing is, right, is a lot of those, like, if skinning up, a, a, up the side of the Wasatch to go ski requires an inordinate amount of fitness, technique, skill, experience, knowledge, experience, base. knowledge, right? So basically you're saying that only people with the resources to get the knowledge and the experience and this, and this that I have, because people can be fit all day and they could show up and they're not going to be able to make that. And yeah, you know what I mean? As you've probably discovered, Brent. Yeah. Last year. And so it essentially you're saying it's a gatekeeper shit. It's like, Oh, well, because you know what? Like, I'm going to go do the same thing you do, but it, I need a helicopter or a snow machine to do it, and I have the resources to do that. I have the resources to pay for that, so I'm going to do it. And it's, no, 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 no. Well, well like but Aaron's, even on a snow machine, you still have to have the yeah. snowpack. You still have to have – you got to know how to ride that machine. You got to know about the snowpack. You got to know safe travel, like sure. all those other things. So there – I understand – It's not getting it. in a taxi and just fucking no. sitting there and no, 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 not at all. And I don't know the statistics, so I hope the audience doesn't, doesn't spear me, but – I want to say more people die from avies in on snow machines on snowmobiles I than they do. Well, are they in causing the them though? Because yeah. it is more disruptive it, to the both, environment, right? Both. So I mean, there's uh, my last trip up to Alaska. There was a couple of people that were killed because an individual went up to go high mark where you go as high as you can up this hillside to you know you make a little mark, see if somebody can beat it. He ripped a slide. The people, oh. it was their lack of awareness or lack of knowledge. They were below him, hanging out watching. But they weren't in a safe zone, which was literally like 50 feet behind them, which was like a hill that was about 50, 60 feet up. This guy ripped a slide, slid down. He was okay. He lived. He, he motored out of it, but killed, like, I think, I think it was two people down Jesus. below watching. Like, That's so crazy. they were, they were just like, woo. Well, I don't, I think it's binary, right? So you, like in, uh, in Arizona, like I race dirt bikes off road and ride a lot and there's certain places where dirt bikes aren't allowed it's like hikers bikers or hikers cyclists and horses only some of those places actually used to be like dirt bike trails and they shut down the trails made by the dirt bikes to like let mountain bikes in there and it's not any less intrusive to the wildlife there's still like a four foot wide trail going everywhere but i think one of the ways that dirt bikers have found that we get less places kind of stolen from us and shut down to riding is by not going off trail or right. like cutting new trails right. all the time, like keeping it being respectful being of like the environment. Right. And then there's share, a few shared use places where it's like, you're allowed to ride a dirt bike there and tons of people ride horses there. Right. So the, the idea is basically like if you're on the dirt bike, that's going to spook the horse. You don't go like rip and pass, right. right? Like you stop, wait for them to pass and then you keep going. But I think that consideration for whether it's a snowmobile, a dirt bike, a heli, whatever, like if some dude's just skinned to the top of a hill, you're not going to like land your helicopter right next to him. Right, like, fuck yeah. you. We got right. up here without breaking a sweat. <laughs> right. Blow all What's this up, shit man? How you feeling? You need yeah. some water? You guys want a water? Hey, do we have hot cocoa in the heli? <laughs> yeah. We actually did have a cappuccino machine in the, in the <laughs> helicopter. Of course. <laughs> Thanks, Savage. <laughs> 
Tell us more about the struggle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Aaron, you mentioned like having uh, consideration and it kind of goes along with if you if you get outside of your comfort zone, you go out and you travel, you experience these other uh, these other cultures, these other places. Now, whenever you see something on the news or you see something in social media, you're not going to be like, man, those people are all fucked up. If you've been there, if you've experienced it, you'd be like, man, live there for a minute, at least visited that place. Was it, you know, you're able to empathize more. Um, so yeah, maybe the mo the, the dirt biker, go ride a horse. See what it's like. See what it's right. like to be on the back of that horse when rap, somebody goes by. I think that's one of the biggest benefits of traveling is Absolutely. learning how to be able to shift your paradigm. Right. You know, seeing things from other people's perspectives and, you know, it's easy to, it's easy to read books uh, and, and get like a taste of it, but nothing. Well, you get weird flavors being. out of the books. A lot of it. like, if you go to any country on the planet, hire a driver. So he's a dude with a normal dr- job and then be like, Hey man, I want you to show me what like your day to day is like. <laughs> and then you'd be like, Oh no, I know this great market. Everything like, no, 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 for real. And you're, they're going to like take you to the shop that their wife works out and like show you the school where their kids are. Like maybe take you to their house for dinner. Dude, I went to a voodoo fortune telling, which was fucking awesome. Where was that? In In, Africa? Yeah. In Africa. I went to a, like literally went to like a witch doctor. Africa has a weird thing too. I don't know if, is Congo have a big Muslim population? I don't think. In the Southwest. Southwest, right? where I was. Okay. So probably the Southwest and Southeast. It was mostly Catholic where I was. Because so, they had all the money. Well, in a lot of places in Africa, there's a weird blending of Islam and, and like, witchcraft. Anim- animist. Yeah. 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 And so you're, like, the, you get that. We- anyway, so this guy was, like, yeah, I have a, a fortune telling to, like, tell me my year's good luck or whatever. And I'm, like, okay, like yeah, let's go. He's, like, you want to go? I'm, like, hell, yeah, I want to go. Can I give him extra money so it's better luck? Right. Yeah. And so we le- and he's, like, yeah, he, he – uh, he told me I don't have to like slaughter a goat or like do a sacrifice or anything. I'm like, well, lucky for the goat, right? Like, but I'm gonna kiss, slaughter a goat anyway, like just to make just sure it kiss. sticks, right? <laughs> right on, man. Hey, man, you can never thing, be too sure. The only thing we didn't like about the witch doctor, it, witch doctor, is he always stole our thunder. Like, like someone would come in with some medical problem, and we'd, oh yeah, you've got gonorrhea, cool man. Here's Zithromax. And then the next day he'd go to the witch doctor and the witch doctor would <coughs> anoint his loins or whatever. Squeezes. And then, of course, he would come back to his village, dude, that witch doctor is badass because <laughs> my gonorrhea got Z-pack cleared that I right up. Do anything. Yeah. Like, no, man, day. the Americans there, they are charlatans. But <laughs> aside from the – but my point was if you, if you go there looking for, like, the weird, all you're going to see is, like, dude, this guy went to a witch doctor. You're not going to see, like – well, he took me to the shop that his wife owns before that. He showed me the school where his kids go to school. He told me about he's trying to build a house and there's no credit system. So he's like, you know, laid the floor and then he works for three months and they put a wall up. Like it's the same bullshit that we deal with here on with a slightly different scale and like variation, right? I think that's one of actually the awesome things that's going to sound a little cheesy about Airbnb is that now – you can go even within the United There's States. There's doctors on Airbnb. No, uh, maybe. They're, I bet they're. But you're staying in a local's are. home. But you're staying in someone's house. Right. You know, in a like in a neighborhood, you're going to go to the grocery store. Right. It's not just being in a hotel and constantly consuming services. Uh, and at least you get a little bit more flavor for the area you're in. So. Yeah. For a while, I got. I don't know, have you guys heard about the? I don't know what it's really being called, but it's an. It's essentially travel tourism that's being promoted by Instagram. So 
Leaning Tower of Pisa. I'll just say that, right? Like, oh, I want to go take that picture and holding up the tower or the picture in front right. of the Taj Mahal. So people are traveling around the world just to take a picture, right? So it looks really cool on their feed. I got pretty bent out of shape about that. <laughs> like <laughs> That was your hill to die on? In, internally, but I was like, man, f- fuck these fucking people. But cognitive reframing, I looked at it this way. You know what? Even if they just get out of the airplane, go straight to the Taj Mahal, take their selfie, you know, take the picture, Instagram boyfriend style. At least they got off the couch, they went somewhere else, they took that picture, and at least for a short period of time, they were exposed to that culture. So I was like, I still don't like it, but at least they went there, they did all that stuff, even if they stayed in the hotel and ate, you know, whatever. Right. Sure. But they got out there. Hopefully, they are going to bring something back. Hopefully, they're also not an asshole to everybody around them, you know, thinking that they're backwards and stuff like that. Well, they probably did that. They probably did that. Yeah. I mean, but, I'll go ahead and just I'll, – I'll be the one that says the elitist shit. Um, I think, man, y- you just cannot expect that most people will get to – or everyone will get to that place mentally. Um, if they're if that was the case – as you you know pointed out before, I, the I cruise used to industry try, wouldn't exist. Yeah, I used to try to defend the masses, and like in my mind, the idea that you're going to fly somewhere, get any uh, like car service from the hotel, they're going to take you to the hotel. You're going to eat all your meals in the hotel, and you're going to go get that one picture for your instant. If you had asked me a year ago, like, there's no fucking way that that human being exists. Like, nobody thinks like that. And now I'm like, man, the like more people think like that than don't is kind yeah. of my my thought process. Well, most people most people bristle at the thought of discomfort, and right. so I mean, I I know people that have traveled that were pissed that like the hotel was beautiful, the scene was beautiful, the food was delicious, but not enough people spoke English for their liking. Right? Yeah. yeah. And you're like, fuck you, dude. You were in <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you were in a different country, and people still spoke enough English that you could like feed yourself. Right. right. You get around. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Tell man, you what. it's, I mean, the whole cruise industry, exactly. It, I don't understand the concept of wanting to go literally just like sit on a boat and like shove food in your face for like four, five, seven, ten days. And every once in a while you stop and like basically go to a mall for a couple of hours. For a very short period of time. Yeah. Right yeah. And you're not, I mean, you're not even seeing like, cruise. the place. Right. Yeah. You're like, yeah, but so, we were just drinking on the bigger booze cruise. <laughs> right? You're on a boat. <laughs> T-Pain's not there. There's not a dolphin. <laughs> you don't have your flippy floppies. Yeah, man. What's the, what's what's the, the point, point, right? So, but you know what? We live in a free country. You get to choose how you spend those idiots can it. do whatever they want. Yeah, man. You get to yeah. choose how you spend your dollars. And if anything, that's, uh, you know, less less people taking up the the spots. In, well, there's in and, Patagonia. You know, yeah. all the stuff that we've talked about, wanting to do, you know, as Zach pointed out, it's, we want to go to places to have an experience that you just can't have anywhere else, Mm -hmm. you know, not, you know, disregard the culture, disregard the people, disregard all of that. Literally there is this one mountain that is the only place I can go to do this, or there is this one Vista that I want to see, or, you know, the only place to do this sort of activity. Like, that's why I like to travel is like, I enjoy as an ancillary benefit, like the culture and the people you meet and all the crazy zany adventures. But I still want to get on a plane and go somewhere for a purpose. Sure. And like, I don't get trapped. Like my wife loves to travel for just like the cities. She loves 
seeing new cities and the architecture and all that sort of stuff. Like to me, a city is a city is a city is a city. No, it's where you land and then drive out of. Yeah, to exactly. Destination. <laughs> like, I get it, man. We're in Stuttgart or I'm in Barcelona. I mean, I love Barcelona. I love going to see the Sagrada Familia because again, it's like you can't see that out anywhere else in the world. But once I've seen that shit, I'm like, all right, let's go like do something else. It's interesting because right. this is just a city. Well, they have these, di- guess what? They don't eat dinner till 10 PM. You're like, yeah, fucking it's dinner, man. <laughs> I don't give a shit. There's what time it happens. There's an ancillary thing too. So, you know, I mentioned I've been going to Europe for um, however, however long over a decade. Um, so one of the places that we would go to jump, it's in Northern Italy. I think, Actually, no, it was the first trip. So there's a lot of areas up there that they have these um, these cables all through the Italian, Swiss, everything else, and they're called Via Ferrata. And it's just basically it means, you know, between between places. So we're using them to access some of these places that we're jumping. But the reason why those Via Ferrata are there is from as far back as World War One. So they were used by troops to get into the mountains, the you know, most austere environment that there was in that area, to carry equipment into these passes so they could defend these areas, defend and, and be offensive, and then through World War II. So that's pretty cool, right? So I a came gondola here- gondola is the last <laughs> fucking place I want to be in a gunfight. Yeah. <laughs> so- um so, about the James Bond. Yeah. <laughs> so you're learning about <laughs> these things that you're just, you're literally walking past. And you're like, oh, this this thing is- a hundred years old and it was used for this reason. So, and, and I, I like history and learning about stuff like that. And then, you know, we went down to Lago de Garda. So it's in this, um, uh, the Trentino region of, of Northern Italy. And I'm with there with a, a former 375, uh, guy. And, you know, he sprinkled some knowledge on me. He said, Hey, did you know that this is where Colonel William Orlando Darby was killed? And I look at him and I'm like, what? He said, yeah, it's actually, there's a memorial right over here, but it's, I don't, he's, he's like, I don't remember exactly where the mortar round hit, but it was two days before the official surrender where they were notifying everybody that yes, we're surrendering. Um, there was like a single mortar round that was fired in volley and it impacted at the same time that Colonel Darby at the time, Colonel Darby was going around and talking with all the troops about like, Hey, thanks for holding the line, like all this other stuff. And then that round impacted and like an eraser sized piece of shrapnel pierced his heart and he died like, you know, like an hour or two later. And so here I am in the Ranger Regiment, in the unit that he was the father of, the, you know, modern day Rangers. And I'm in this place doing a completely, you know, different activity, learning about all this other stuff. Right. And, you know, fast forward, um, I think it was like a year or two later. And then my, uh, my promotion board for E5 actually in, in Bagram. I get asked by my first sergeant, and I got it wrong, but I knew where it was. He said, what unit was Colonel William Orlando Darby in when he was killed? So I figured, like, 2nd Ranger Battalion. And my first sergeant was like, wrong! It was 10th, Mo- uh, 10th Motown, 10th Mountain, because of all the stuff after Sestina and all that other stuff. But I knew where it was. <laughs> I knew where he I've was killed. There. Yeah, I've yeah. been there. Um, but it's those ancillary things. When you go there, you go in there for one thing. But as long as you're open to it along the journey, you might find something out that you would have never even thought of. That you didn't even go there for that. Yeah. Did you know this is where Charlie Sheen put on his <laughs> hair gel before <laughs> Info? Navy Seals. <laughs> Navy Seals. That's that's a memorial spot for NASPEC War. Wow. On that note, <laughs> I think that might top it off. Thanks for listening. Awkward. We'll talk to you soon.